us about grief, something that is universal in human experience. And one thing I'm very confident of is that this sermon will be insufficient in terms of being able to speak to everything that could be spoken to about grief, but I pray that it will be helpful, that the things we talk about will be good for us and hope-giving. And so let's go to God now uh, and ask him to help us uh, so that the time would be useful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you as sinful people and as people who know uh, what it's like to experience grief. We know what it's like to experience sorrow. And Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come now and do great work through your word in our hearts and in our minds. We often don't feel the ways that we want to about many things in this life. We don't feel the ways that we should about many things in this life. And we pray that you would remind us from your word today of what is true and that our minds would be able to track with your word and that our hearts would be filled with right affections for you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be grown uh, today in the faith and that we would trust you all the more uh, as a result of hearing from your word. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Friends, just a couple other things. Uh, I failed to do this last week. I want to continue to recommend good resources on these topics that I have found helpful, uh, even in my own life or in preparation. Um, So just in thinking about depression uh, and anxiety in particular, I want to put this book in front of you one more time, Spurgeon's Sorrows by a brother named Zach S. Wine, just a cataloging of Charles Spurgeon's struggles with depression and anxiety. Uh, A lot of words from Spurgeon along with words from Zach Very helpful book, very compassionate treatment of of the topic. I would recommend it to anybody. Uh, Another book that I found helpful on anxiety, and I failed to mention this one last week, is a book called Running Scared by a brother named Ed Welch, uh, subtitled Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. Uh, This is a very helpful resource in thinking about uh, anxiety and some of the things that we considered, I guess, two weeks ago on December the 17th. And then finally today, uh, if I was going to recommend one book that I think is accessible, readable, really helpful uh, on thinking about just sorrow, suffering, grief, and the difficulties of life, uh, it might very well be this one by our brother Jerry Bridges, recently departed to be with the Lord. The title of this one is Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. It's a good book, a good read uh, that I would highly recommend to anyone uh, in dealing with these topics. So, as you all know, I've talked about the motivation for this sermon series two or three times now uh, in front of the congregation. Uh, As we were thinking about the preaching calendar for the fourth quarter of 2017 as pastors, and we thought about the idea of doing this series on these topics, we were all in agreement that it would be good. Because we as men also struggle with these things. We are not in any way immune to this kind of wrestling and this kind of struggling with depression and anxiety and fear, worry, grief, sorrow. Uh, And even next week is we're going to think about dependency issues and addiction. These are not foreign to your pastors, and we trust that each of you are going to struggle with at least one of these, uh, if not multiple um, of these, these conditions. And so we thought it would be good 
uh, at this time of the year to think through these things. And what I've enjoyed about this series, frankly, is that it's basically an attempt to answer the question, what does it look like to live life as a Christian in this fallen world? What does that look like? That's really what we're thinking about. And we're thinking about sin and what sin is in terms of the fallen human condition and the things that we wrestle with as a result of our fallenness. And those things are just good for us and universally applicable. And so as we think about these various things, whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever, grief today, you can kind of fill in the blank, whatever your struggle is, whether that's anger or pride or lust or greed or whatever it is. It's like you can kind of fill that in the blank and think well and biblically about these various things through the lenses that we've been using. And for anyone in here this morning who would not understand yourself to be a Christian, part of what I have aimed to do in this series is to present an honest treatment and a compassionate treatment of these issues that so many people struggle with and then ultimately hold out the hope that can only be offered and found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today's topic of grief, I think, of the four that we are going to consider is probably the one that is most universal. This is common to pretty much every human being's experience. Grief and sorrow. I bet if I were to ask for a show of hands, I would think, except for maybe the youngest people sitting here in the room, hands would go up. Yes, brother, I know. Grief. I've been intimately acquainted with sorrow. And so I look forward to our time this morning uh, from uh, thinking about grief from God's word. And this sermon, just like the other ones, I would just reiterate and remind you that I'm going to speak to sufferers and caregivers alike, but I would understand that everything that we're going to consider is applicable really to everyone. Because you're going to suffer and you're going to care for people who are suffering. And so I'm going to continue to reiterate some of the principles that you've heard in the first couple of sermons. Just bear with me as I do some of that. Though This one will have a little bit of a different feel. And then I would encourage you, if you're, if you're able to do this, once the sermons are all up online, listen to all four of them so that you can get a pretty filled out, um, full-orbed treatment of these issues. And in particular, the mental and emotional health stuff we've been considering. So now, without uh, any more introductory comments from me, it's not necessary uh, I want to just dive in. I've got basically a five-part message today, uh, and so we're just going to take it parts at a time. I'm not going to give them to you ahead of time. Uh, I'll try to make it plain enough where we are. So in part one of the sermon, I simply want to talk about grief for a moment. Uh, Shannon has done this some today. Branton has done this some already today. Thank you to both of you for your testimonies. And uh, I just want us to reflect for a few more moments on grief and what it is before we move any further. So I looked grief up in several dictionaries. And a general sort of summary definition of grief, I think decent one is this, keen mental suffering or distress over affliction or loss, sharp sorrow or painful regret. But then I also went outside of dictionaries to Wikipedia, that infallible source of wisdom and knowledge, uh, and found these, I thought, helpful, useful comments on grief. These are quotations from the website. Grief is a multifaceted response to loss, particularly to the loss of someone or something that has died to which a bond or affection was formed. Although conventionally focused on the emotional response to loss, 
It also has physical, cognitive, behavioral, social, cultural, and philosophical dimensions. It's true. And then this, grief is a natural response to loss. It is the emotional suffering one feels when something or someone the individual loves is taken away. The grief associated with death is familiar to most people, but individuals grieve in connection with a variety of losses throughout their lives, such as unemployment, ill health, or the end of a relationship. And so I was grateful for the testimonies today because they spoke to all of this stuff. Grief is not just limited to the death of a loved one, though that is a substantial kind of grief, for sure. And we're going to wrestle with that. But grief occurs in many forms. The loss of a job, the loss of a friend, the end of a relationship of various kinds, physical suffering, illness. Those things bring about grief and sorrow. Now, grief, by definition, unlike depression and anxiety in this sense, Grief, by definition, is circumstantial. It is produced by things that happen. Of course, there is just general sorrow and misery associated with living in this fallen world. We've thought a lot about that lately. But grief is caused by things that have happened. There can be grief over things that you have done. So you literally have brought this upon yourself in terms of a decision that you made or maybe something that you did not do, sins you've committed, etc. Those things can cause you grief and heartache. That's true. And often grief is over things that have happened to you that are outside of your control. You could do nothing about it. If you had been able to do anything about it, you would have. And you grieve as a result of what has happened to you. Some of those things that happen to you are of the nature of calamity, disaster, tragedy. In particular, there we're thinking about the sudden death of someone you love, the car accident, the heart attack, the sudden and unexpected diagnosis, right? Those things are calamities, tragedies. And then some of these things that happen to us are the kind of garden, everyday variety, typical adversities and heartaches of life in this world. All of that is Something or are things, I should say, all of those kinds of things produce grief. It's not just the acute tragedy. It's also the ongoing adversity that can produce grief as well. So we want to be thoughtful in those ways as we approach the topic. And as I've already said a couple of times, grief is flat out universal. All kinds of people, all races, all classes, right? All ages, more or less, know what grief is. Is They have experienced it. We have experienced it. There have been many novels and poems and songs written about loss, about the death of a loved one, or even the end of a relationship. You know that. I don't have to tell you. So whatever your flavor is, right, you can find something this afternoon to read or listen to that would be about this topic, whether it's Lincoln Park's One More Life or Josh Grayson's Can't Say Goodbye, or Charlie Puth and Wiz Khalifa singing about the day that they'll see their friend again. It's universal to our human experience. And at times, grief can be overwhelming. It can have that almost paralyzing type effect on us where it is so consuming that it's like, I don't even know how to function. I don't know how I'm going to get out of bed and go through the things that I've got to do today or this week as a result of this thing that has happened to me. And then it can also be more chronic and ongoing, this thing 
that's always there. It's kind of beneath the surface, but it's always with us. It comes to mind regularly, maybe for a long time, years or even decades. We wrestle with these things. This is just a snapshot, kind of a broad brush attempt to talk about grief and what it looks like for you and for me. So now moving into part two of the sermon, I just want us to consider this reality, this truth. In a fallen world, grief is reasonable. In a fallen world, grief is reasonable. This is, this is important that we just get this straight right now. Because there exists in the church, I'm not saying at CBC, I'm not saying in every church, but in many churches there exists these overly spiritual kind of pious notions that grief is never okay. That it always, grief is always a result of some kind of lack of faith. That grief, if it's a result of some sort of lack of trust in God, that if somebody is really just worked over by grief, and if someone is just absolutely heartbroken and devastated and struggling with grief, that there must be a deficiency in that person. There must be a deficiency in that individual's faith. There's not enough trust in the Lord. Not enough of an understanding of the sovereignty of God or the providence of God or whatever. You fill in the blank. That assumption, friends, I would say is most often, or I'll put it this way. I want to be careful. It's not necessarily true. Yes, we sin. Yes, our sin is involved. Yes, could we cope with grief better? Of course we could. But to grieve is reasonable. Scripture is full of grief and lament, absolutely replete with it. As I've said before in all of these sermons, the Bible is not silent on these issues at all. Far from it. If you open the Scripture to almost any text in any of these weeks, whether it's depression or anxiety or fear, or now this, grief and lament, you can open to any book of the Bible and find this. It's every place. So how in the world we've concluded that grief is somehow not an appropriate part of the Christian life is beyond me. Whether we're considering the book of Job or any of the prophets practically, or the Psalms, almost any one of them, or the New Testament's treatment over and over again of suffering and of trial, the Bible is very honest and is very full of words about grief and lament. And to be real, guys, not to lament the wreckage that sin has caused in this world would be ridiculously inappropriate. To not lament the state of things in some measure would be ridiculously inappropriate. Not to grieve the death of a human being made in God's image. Not to grieve over suffering in your life or the lives of other people would be at best insensitive. And in reality, would be insane to not grieve. And oftentimes, I think we need to understand that grief is not, as I've already alluded to, a short-lived thing. It is an ongoing struggle. Yes, it might be most acute for a season, but it will still be there often for people years and years later after something has happened in their lives that caused them pain. And as I've already said, ongoing grief and sorrow is not necessarily an indication of a lack of trust in the Lord. It's very possible to trust God and to have good theology and wrestle and struggle with grief. 
and to experience great sorrow of your soul. So this is never, again, I want to be clear, it's never to excuse wallowing, right? It's not to affirm people in despondency or to encourage people to despair. That's not what we're saying. But this is to say that compassion and charity are required toward the grieving and toward the sorrowful. This kind of sounds familiar, right? The Scriptures, friends, let's just kind of end this part two with this thought. The Scriptures never tell us not to grieve. They never do. They will tell us how to grieve in light of God, in light of His power, His authority, His character. They'll tell us how to grieve in light, ultimately, of His plan of redemption. But they never tell us not to grieve. So with those things in mind, I want to move now into part three, which is where we'll spend a while. So in part three, I just want to answer the question, is there hope? Is there comfort for us in times of grief and great sorrow? The answer is yes. And I want to give this to you, the hope and the comfort, I want to give it to you under a few headings. Just got heading A under part three. So the first place in the scripture that we can find comfort is in the sovereignty of God. We can find comfort and hope in the sovereignty of God. I'm going to read some Bible to you. I hope you're not upset by that. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 7. Read this way. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you. He's talking to Cyrus of Persia, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that means everywhere, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And then this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So that last piece is essential. God rules and reigns over everything, including the most powerful nations on the planet that don't know Him. Doesn't matter. God is in control of all things. The light, yes, but also the darkness. God creates well-being. Okay, that's easy enough for me to track with. But He also creates calamity. He is the Lord who does all these things. This is His own testimony about Himself. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. See now that I, even I am He. This is the Lord speaking again. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So not only does the Lord give life, He ultimately is sovereign over the end of life. Not only does the Lord make people well and heal them, but He also is sovereign over the wounded. To put this another way, He is not just sovereign over the healing, He is sovereign over the cancer as well. Right? We have to think in these terms biblically. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. 
I could go on. I mean, the Bible, friends, is full of verses like these, where it is quite clear beyond any shadow of any doubt that God is a sovereign God, that He made the world and He reigns over it, and that He does whatever He pleases in it. And so it's good for us to remember that in the times of suffering and grief and sorrow, this is no accident. This is no happenstance. This is the work of a sovereign and providential God. Now, the sovereignty of God by itself is not enough. It's not enough to just say, okay, well, God's in control. Because, yeah, okay, that on the one hand is comforting, but I need to know more about Him if I'm going to be comforted by the fact that He is in control. So that brings us to the second heading, letter B in part three. So not only do we find comfort in the sovereignty of God, A, but B, we find comfort in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So not only is He sovereign, but He's good completely. Not only is He sovereign, He is faithful utterly. It would be terrifying if He wasn't. A God with complete sovereignty and complete control who is not good and faithful is a terrifying proposition. But He is not that way. He is a faithful and a good God. Psalm chapter, Psalm 34, verses 15 to 22. Portions of that I'm going to read for you now. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. He hears. And the righteous, we should understand, is just His children. Those who have been made righteous through trusting Him. His saints, right? So His ears are toward the cry of His people. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He is faithful to his people. He is concerned for the well-being of his people. He is near to his people in their brokenheartedness. Psalm 116 and verse 15, a wonderfully sweet verse. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. I'm just going to read that again. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It's easy for us when we start talking about how huge God is, when we start to think about the fact that like even today there are like 7 billion plus people living on the planet. How much could God know me? How much could God care about me? He's got way bigger things than me going on. I am insignificant, like hugely insignificant in God's eyes. Am I not? And the answer to that is no. You are. In every good way I could mean this. You are significant as God's child in His eyes. And He cares for you. He is not just sitting off in the heavens, ruling and reigning and getting glory for Himself with zero concern for you as His child. That is not who He is. He is a loving God and He is a good and faithful God. Psalm 56 and verse 8. Again, a wonderful reminder of the fact that God is intimately acquainted with your grief. The psalmist writes, You have kept count of my tossings. My tossings and my turnings in my bed. When I can't sleep, God's aware. God keeps count of those. And you have put my tears in your bottle. The Lord is aware of the tears you cry. They're not wasted by Him. And they are known by Him. 
And then the psalmist asks, are they, the tossings and the tears, are they not in your book? Rhetorically, yes, they are. God cares. He is personally involved in your life as His child. He is working always in your life to accomplish His good purposes. And this is where we're reminded the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, they come together. When we think about passages like Isaiah 46, where the Lord says that He not only declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, but He tells us that He accomplishes all of His purposes, not just most of them, but all of them. That means globally, and that means individually in your life. He accomplishes every single purpose He intends to accomplish. And then we get to verses like Romans 8, 28 and following where we remind ourselves that God works all things together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Well, we can trust that because He has the authority and the sovereignty to pull that off. So what the Bible reveals about God in terms of His total and full personality and all of His attributes matters to us when we come to a topic like grief and suffering. It's not an accident. It's not happenstance. It's on purpose, and the purposes are good, and the end is not in jeopardy. God will do it. He will accomplish good in your life. Friends, God is compassionate, and He cares for us, and He's not indifferent, let alone callous towards the suffering you experience on a daily basis. It's good for us to remember when we think this way, we're going to get to the gospel here soon. But remember that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. One of the reasons that the creation was plunged into ruin, one of the reasons the fall happened, I think, is so that Jesus, God the Son, could enter the world and suffer. So Christ knows what it's like to suffer as we do, and to grieve even as we do. It's good to remember that. So we find comfort in the Scripture, letter A, because God is sovereign, letter B, because He is good and faithful. But then ultimately, finally, we find, letter C, hope in God's plan of redemption. In God's plan of redemption, the good news, the gospel. So if you will, if you have your Bibles, open them. I want you to turn with me to these Texts. We're going to look at a couple together. We won't spend a ton of time, but I want you to look at your Bibles if possible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to give you just a moment to flip there. I'm going to read through these verses. 1 Corinthians 4, 13 to 18, and then a couple of verses from chapter 9, and just comment as we go. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, But we do not, we the apostles who have done the work of the planting of this church, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That means people who have already died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So again, he's not saying don't grieve. He is saying we just don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. We want you to grieve like people who have hope in God. Here we go. Verse 14, 4. Because since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So those of you, excuse me, those amongst you who have already died, the people that you love, your loved ones who have died in Christ, will be resurrected from the dead and God will bring them to himself finally. There is comfort there. For this we declare to you, verse 15, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, that's the people obviously who are alive at the return of Jesus, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So it's not as though those who have died in Christ are at any disadvantage. You need not worry for your loved ones who have perished trusting Christ. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We have hope in the promise of bodily resurrection. For yourself and for everyone you love who has trusted Christ, you have this sure and certain hope that there will be a resurrection. A real bodily resurrection. Unto eternal life. Now, skip down your page or maybe turn a page over to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. This verse, I think, is one of the verses that I would almost always go to to try to comfort anyone in a time of sorrow. Just a great reminder of the Lord's goodness. Paul reminds the church, For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And then verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You realize how chapter 4 and verse 18, chapter 5 and verse 11, they basically say the same thing. Remind each other of these truths and encourage one another with these truths. That if you have trusted Christ, a resurrection is coming and whether... Living or already dead, you will always be with the Lord, and we all will be bodily resurrected to be with Him and each other forever. So this is where the message of the resurrection has to be in our minds, on our hearts, in our speech all the time, not just on Easter. That's why we make a big deal at CBC about the resurrection. The cross, amen, absolutely, the cross in it is... Part of the essence of our faith, the substitutionary work of Christ. And that's not all he did. He lived the perfect life, which we always like to uphold. And he conquered death. He got up from the grave. His sacrifice was vindicated. And we, because he's our representative, because he is our substitute, he is the second and greater Adam. If we trust in him, we'll be made like him. Resurrected, imperishable. This is the teaching of the Scripture. And nothing less than that is the message of the Gospel. The Gospel is not simply the forgiveness of sins. The Gospel is this complete message of restoration, redemption, transformation, immortality. No sin, no sorrow, no pain anymore, and God forever. That's the Gospel. All by faith, apart from works. You don't earn this. It's a gift from God. You ought to be sitting there thinking, you have got to be kidding. This is too good to be true. Which we say, yeah, it sounds like that, but friend, you can bank your life on it. Because God has said it. It is good and it is true news. I want you to turn with me for just a moment to Revelation chapter 21. So we're almost to the end of the Bible in this text. Revelation 21 beginning in verse 1. This may be a familiar passage to many. 
But if it's not, for anyone in the room, it is worth our time to read it. Because this, again, is what we are striving toward. This is what we are looking to. This is what we are hoping for. This is the kind of exercise of living life with eternity in view, right? You live from the end backwards. So we cast our gaze upon this. Revelation 21, verse 1 and following. Then I saw, this is the Apostle John speaking of his visions that he was seeing and that the Lord gave him that he would put in the Word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then this, you think God doesn't care about you and your tears? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Praise God. That that's true. This is not some pipe dream. This is not some fairy tale. This is what God has promised you and me as we have trusted in His Son. This is the best happily ever after that we could ever envision. You know when you watch that movie or you read that book and it's kind of like you're really engaged and wrapped up with the characters and the story and the plot and it gets to the end and it's kind of like they lived happily ever after and you're kind of, you're happy about that on the one hand, but you're kind of like there's a part of you that aches and you're kind of like, but what's really, what's going to happen? Because you know this side of heaven, happily ever after, ever after doesn't exist. Things change, things fall apart. But this is a happily ever after that's legit, that will happen, that will be that. No sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no death anymore. No sin, no Satan. There's a reason why our favorite stories so often parallel the great story. It's because this was written into our hearts, right? And so we look to this in times of grief and sorrow. We lift our eyes from the horizon of what we're experiencing and we cast our gaze ultimately upon Christ and we hope in God and what He has promised. And friends, as I've already said, today and practically in every sermon, it cannot be overstated that all of these things are yours apart from your works, apart from your merit. They are yours simply by trusting in the Son of God, crucified for sinners. As you look to Jesus, His perfect life, He is the second Adam who fulfilled the law that you have failed to fulfill like I have. God's standard is perfect righteousness. Jesus has it and it is yours by trusting Him. You owe God a debt, namely your life, because you've sinned against Him. Christ laid down His life for you. That payment, that ransom is yours through faith. The wrath of God that you deserve Jesus took it in full. We've thought about this a lot lately. 
He took it in full for you if you're trusting in Him. And then as we've just thought about, not only has He delivered you from sin, He has conquered the grave and made it possible for you to live in perfect fellowship with God and with the saints forever. And it's yours through faith. And we're going to be considering that a lot in the book of Galatians as we begin that in January. I'm already excited for that. And we look forward to that time together. And what's important, guys, is we've been thinking about these mental and emotional health issues. And we've been offering and holding out this honest and charitable treatment of depression and of anxiety or grief or addiction next week. We've been holding out that charitable approach and we're also trying to at the same time offer legitimate hope, not just like sappy, ridiculous, feel-good, mind-game crap. We're trying to give you real stuff. You understand that only through the gospel can those things be legitimately offered. The only way to be real about sin and to be real about what it is and the wreckage it produces and then to be charitable with each other legitimately but not affirming ridiculous behavior, to have that happen and then to be able to offer real hope, you cannot do that apart from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only way. This is why the world can't do this. Psychology can't do this. The therapeutic mindset can't give you this. It will not work. It cannot happen. It only happens and it's only possible through the gospel. Redemption, restoration, charity, love, honesty about sin, an understanding of where these things come from. It comes from God's truth or nowhere. And now, as we sort of land this part three that I've already said would be, would be long, I want to give you a couple of I mean, I've just got them listed as notes, kind of notes to you, so you do with that what you will. I want to make these things clear. Everything that I've just said about these wonderful, massive truths of God's Word and how they are the ground of our hope, the ground of our assurance, they're where we go in times of grief and sorrow. I want to say these things. First note on everything I've said is this. God's Word, God's truth does not necessarily take the pain away. God's truth does not necessarily take the pain away. It gives us, though, a filter to push our pain through. It gives us lenses through which to look at our pain and our grief and our sorrow and to process it in godly and mature ways. But it doesn't just make you feel better this afternoon. Like you came in here grieving and like I leave this service no longer grieving. That's not how this works. But it gives you a filter and it gives you lenses. And my encouragement to all of us, including myself, as we think about, okay, how do I go about taking the truth of the word and processing my grief? How do I go about taking these big truths and then using these great truths in my fight against sorrow? What, what do I do? How should I think about these things? What should my affections, my emotions, where should they be? And for that, I want us to turn to the last text I'm going to ask you to turn to. I want us to turn to the book of Lamentations. So Lamentations is always in the same place. It's just often hard to find, right? It's located between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, so this is also a book written by the prophet Jeremiah. 
though it is a separate book in our Bible. So right after Jeremiah chapter 52, the last chapter of that book, you will turn the next page and you will see Lamentations chapter 1. But I want you to turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2, and I want to begin our consideration briefly in verse 20. I just want to kind of set some context for you. So many of you may know this. The prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel, this is just really quick, are contemporaries of each other. They're writing at basically the same time. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, right, that's been conquered by the Babylonians. He is still in the area of the holy city. And then Ezekiel is in exile with those who were taken off. So they're both prophets writing at the same time under the rule of the Babylonians, one from Jerusalem, one from exile. And so Jeremiah finds himself in Jerusalem, the holy city, the center of God's work on earth, and things are in shambles. Absolute shambles. Wreckage. Put your eyes on Lamentations 2 and verse 20. He's already been writing for the better part of two chapters about how bad everything is. And he says, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should the people of God be reduced to cannibalism, eating their own young in the streets of the holy city? Are you kidding? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Should the priests be killed in the temple? This stuff is happening. It's falling apart. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. People are dying. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. So my kids, people I love, are being destroyed by our enemies. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. This is lamentation for real, right? Hence the name of the book. Things don't get much worse. And I'm reading all of this for us to give us some context of some words he's about to write that are mind-blowing. So skip down with me to verse 16 of chapter 3. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so my hope, so has my hope from the Lord. And then he says this, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And then this, where on earth does this come from? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Amen. They don't come from anywhere on earth. They come from heaven. Those words, they come by the Spirit of God, but it is instructive for us. Those words, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, are not accidental words. Right? 
So I just want to speak for just a moment about the fact that our, our emotions and our affections really matter. We were made in God's image as emotional creatures. And oftentimes our emotions mislead us. Our emotions take us in pl- to directions and places that we should not go. And the inappropriate question to ask often is to ask a Christian, how are you feeling today? I've heard preachers that I respect talk about this, and and we've all experienced things like this. You've been to the church service where at the beginning, you know, there's kind of like the big countdown screen, which I mean, I realize, you know, we've done that before in an effort to start services on time and whatnot, but the countdown screen happens and like 10 seconds to go or 30 seconds to go or a minute to go, the band kicks up, right? And everything's like getting amped up for the service to start. And then the worship leader or whoever gets up there, lots of excitement, geeked up and says something like, you know, good morning, everybody or whatever. How y'all feeling out there? Right? How you feeling this morning? Whatever church, right? That's the question to which my response to that is similar to what many of you may be thinking. It's like, well, I don't know that that's all that helpful because if I were to honestly answer that question, how am I feeling right now? You might question whether or not I'm even in the faith, right? I fought with my wife on the way to church, hadn't read my Bible in days. My prayer life is a mess. I'm not doing well. I don't feel really good about anything. My life feels like it just flat out sucks right now and I I don't like it. I'm not doing well. So, that's the wrong question to ask. How y'all feeling today? Now, we want to feel as we should. But oftentimes the pathway to right feeling is by doing what the prophet does for us here. Don't tell me. Don't talk to me about how I feel. Tell me. Remind me of what I know. Remind me of what I know and who I know. And who He is, His promises, His faithfulness, His goodness that will never fail me. Remind me of Jesus and His righteousness that is mine through faith. Remind me of those promises. And then we'll have something to sing about, for goodness sake. If you're asking me to drum it up out of my own emotional feelings this morning, a lot of days, I don't have a lot to sing about. A lot of days, show up at church, might not feel like singing, but you remind me of this stuff, you remind me about the Lord, His faithfulness, and we can sing. Right? So this is good. It's instructive that we would call to mind the truth, that the Spirit of God would remind us of the truth, that we would sit under the preaching of the Word that reminds us of the truth, that we would sing songs full of the truth so that our minds would be informed and affected and then our hearts would be stirred and we would have hope of feeling as we should. That's how this works. So those were my notes to you about God's Word and how do we wrestle with Grief according to the Bible won't take the pain away immediately. It'll help you filter it and process it. And do this. Call to mind what's true. Remind one another of what's true. Come here. Gather with us where we're going to remind one another of what's true. And therefore, we'll have hope. So part four. These last couple of parts will be brief. Because I realize our time is leaving us. So part four, very briefly, is just a word about, as I've done in each of these sermons, about growth and sanctification. 
about victory over grief and sorrow, right? We, we use that language. We want victory. We want deliverance. We want growth and maturation. And a lot of those desires are good. We want to be growing as living Christians. So, friend, I would suggest, as I have in other sermons, I've treated this more in depth than those sermons, but growth and sanctification often will look like just continually over and over again in the face of grief and sorrow, taking it to the Lord, praying, talking to Him, being honest about it with Him, but then doing these things that we've been thinking about, calling to mind the things that are true, God's character, His promises, His faithfulness, and then wrestling with your grief and your sorrow accordingly. And essentially at the end of the day, what does it come down to? It comes down to faith and trust. It's growth looks like, okay, when grief like slams down on me, whether it's the death of my mom that happened 20 years ago, and for whatever reason today, maybe it's her birthday, or maybe it's Christmas, or I don't even know why, but I'm heartbroken anew today. Or maybe it's something that just happened last week, and I'm still bawling my eyes out. It doesn't matter. I'm going to the Lord, and I am trusting Him through the sorrow. I'm trusting Him through the grief. That's growth. That's sanctification. That is maturation. Victory does not necessarily mean that you will never feel the overwhelming weight of grief again. That's just not real life. That's not the promise of the Bible. That you won't ever feel grief again. That you won't feel really sad again. That you won't ever cry over your dad dying again. No, that's not the promise. But the promise is that God is faithful and that He's purposeful and that He spends your sorrows well and that you can trust Him. So that was part four. I told you it would be quick. Now part five. This is sort of the conclusion. And I've done this in each of the sermons, but I want to continue to just speak a word to our church, a word to CBC in terms of approaching grief today with just these general mental and emotional struggles. And these words are in particular to caregivers. Uh, here at the end of the message. All right, so what I'm about to say, I feel very strongly. And I pray that this kind of stuff isn't happening in our church. So glib, trite, sort of cliche responses to like heartache and to genuine suffering are completely unhelpful. Trite sayings, glib speech, dismissive words, cliches, not useful. Absolutely not helpful. Sometimes these kinds of statements are true. Like they actually contain truth in them. Sometimes they don't. But that's not really the point that I'm trying to make. I mean, just some examples. I, I just, you could think of a hundred of these. But here's a few. Uh, when stuff hard happens, we kind of have this like, well, um, in speaking to each other, well, it's just, it's, it's part of life. You know, we, we talk like that. Part of life. You know, assumption, like, get your butt in gear already. It's part of life. You know, let's go. Uh, everything happens for a reason. We say that. Everything happens for a reason. You know, take heart. God's got a plan. You know, we just kind of really flippantly say that. When somebody's really hurt, it's like, hey, you know, God's got a plan for your life. It's a good one. You know, we just sort of, all right, on with our day. Or this one. He won't ever give you more than you can handle. That one's false. He'll give you more than you can handle always so that you have to look away from yourself to Him. Preach a sermon on that. I want to, but I'm not going to do it right now. All right, so then, or this, you know, it's kind of like what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Again, shreds of truth in that, but it's just not helpful, right? It's, it's just cliche nonsense. Or, you know, and even in, you know, like a Reformed church like ours, it's like, well, you know, God's, God's sovereign. 
He's on the throne. You know, it's like true. But what you just said has helped me not at all. You know, in this moment of heartache and pain, the way that you just communicated it to me. So I'll kind of side here with, with my friend Trip Lee, who in one of his songs says this, you can keep your anecdotes and cute quotes. I'll pass on cliches for true hopes. Thank you very much. Which is what we want to offer to one another is legitimate hope in a compassionate and charitable way. So in that that vein. So that was kind of, I've got a few sort of bullets under this one too. So that was bullet one, the, the trite, cliche stuff. We've got no, no time for that. But then the second little bullet here, in terms of word to caregivers, is that there are good and bad times to correct bad theology. There are good and bad times to correct bad theology. So, just to be very frank and brief, the hospital room is not one of those times when you correct bad theology. And the things that are said in pain, right? When somebody's loved one has just died and they say something that you know is not true, that is not the time to correct the bad theology, like at the funeral service, okay? Like, let's just use our brains and have some mercy on each other, with each other, and think about, you know, there's going to come a time, I'm going to trust God in this, in the coming months and years as I walk with this brother or sister, we're going to be able to talk about that. We're going to be able to talk about that thing that he or she just said in a different setting that's not as acute, and it will be far more helpful. So, just a thought for you. Have some discernment about when to correct that bad theology. Next bullet, word to caregivers, is that let's have our antennas up for the more typical kinds of adversity, the more normal, mundane kinds of suffering and grief, right? Our brothers and sisters experience adversity, suffering, grief, sorrow of sort of regular ways, in sort of regular ways all the time. And it's good for us to be aware of this. To legitimately bear one another's burdens and sorrows does not mean only when the tragedy happens. I think most of the time, the way we're doing that is by bearing one another's burdens and sorrows that we think of as relatively common. So we need to have our antennas up for the suffering and the sorrow and the grief that's going on that's maybe not as obvious. Ask questions. Offer help and encouragement. Next bullet point for caregivers is that certainly alongside caring for the the kind of normal adversity, we do want to be ready to support and love in the times of tragedy and calamity. So when the sudden, awful, horrible thing happens, of course, we want to be ready to care and be ready to sacrifice and rearrange our calendars to love one another. Of course, we want to do that. And then finally, just last bullet point here, is just the kind of culture that the pastors, and I trust the members of CBC, what we're striving to create here. I just want to continue to talk about this. We want to have a culture here where sin is identified where sin is called out even, and where sin is corrected. And we live with one another in an honest, compassionate kind of accountability. Right? That's what we want. It's biblical. It honors the Lord. We want to extend charity and grace and patience toward one another as we walk together. Or as I've been saying lately, we, you want to have room in your church, we want to have room in this church for brothers and sisters who are locking arms with us to walk with a limp, right? A lot of us have limps in our cadence, and we need to be compassionate and merciful.
towards the limps and the struggles of other believers. And then ultimately, we want to have a culture where we're always, in every circumstance, in every kind of sin, in every moment, we are pointing one another away from ourselves to Jesus. Always. The answer, the hope, the assurance, always, every time, 100% of the time, is found outside of you, not inside of you. So if you're looking in here for hope, for assurance, for meaning, for comfort, you're looking in the wrong place. And we have to remind each other of that. Because we are so prone to, to look in our own minds, our hearts. We look for fruit. We look for this. We look for maturity or strength or whatever. And we're not going to find it anywhere but in Christ. And so how this sermon series kind of fits into this culture is kind of cool in the providence of God. Because we've been thinking a lot about sin and the fallen human condition and the miseries that are a result of that. And that produces this kind of compassionate understanding living together because it's like, okay, I get it. Like, you, you, you have that condition and I have this condition. We're not excusing ridiculous behavior. We're not affirming sin, but we're charitable with each other in the ways that we particularly struggle. And our various struggles, right, the proclivities, the predispositions that we have, the bends in our frame that are unique, the jagged edges of my personality and yours. We're honest about those, but we're charitable towards others with respect to their bends and their jagged edges because we are so prone to be self-righteous. Two areas, Just this is kind of an aside, I'm happy to talk about this more at another time. Two ways that we are ridiculously self-righteous in particular ways are these. One, we are very self-righteous about sins that we used to struggle with that we see victory in our lives over. So it's like, hey, I used to struggle with that, and I don't struggle like that anymore, and if you would just do what I did, you would be delivered as well. We have that kind of self-righteousness going on. But then the other area of serious, substantial self-righteousness is towards sins that we don't struggle with, right? It's like depression. I've never been depressed a day in my life. I don't know what that's like. And then it's easy for us to look at the depressed brother or sister and say, what the heck is wrong with you? Get it together. Don't you trust God? That is so wicked and unhelpful, right? And it just, I don't want to be a part of a church like that. I trust you don't either. And so we can live with one another in a way that is understanding and charitable and gracious because we realize, you know, I might not struggle with that thing, but I struggle with this thing over here that she doesn't struggle with. And I want her to be charitable to me and merciful and patient with me as I work this out, trusting Christ, right? And I want to do the same in return. I want to be patient and kind and loving and merciful as she works this out, trusting Christ and as we walk together. And as I've said a lot lately, and I won't labor it again, we've talked a lot in this sermon series about being saved by faith in Jesus, not our faithfulness, right? And that is a huge, like, big distinction that has to be made. That comes into play in this conversation. And then, when you take this understanding of the fallen human condition and predispositions to struggle and 
what God actually promises in His Word in terms of growth and sanctification, and always looking outside of ourselves to Christ. When you take all of these things into consideration and the fact that we are saved by faith and not faithfulness, we have a shot by the power of the Holy Spirit to live charitably and lovingly together. And that's what we hope for. That's what we pray for. That's what we preach for. And I want to lead us in prayer for that right now. And we'll land the plane this way. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the time that we've had to look to the Bible. We pray that Your Spirit would still, even as we leave this place, would be accompanying the words that have been spoken. That You would be using the, the prayers and the songs and the readings and the Lord's table that we're about to partake of to do good things in our hearts and minds. We pray, God, that we would feel Your presence near to us when we hurt. We pray that we would be people who call to mind the things that are true. And that you would give us hope even in the darkest of days and even in the deepest times of grief. Lord, produce at CBC this kind of God-centered, charitable culture that we've been considering. We know that we can't produce it in our own strength, so we ask you to do it. Continue to give us faith that we might trust your Son. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.